So it seems that most of our clients are charitably inclined and want to incorporate charitable giving as part of their estate plan. In this episode of Trust Me, we're going to discuss the basics of charitable planning. And yes, we will talk about those great acronyms, the CRETS, the CRATS, the CLATS. Our guest today, Amy Takeuchi Wanless, has presented on this topic. She is a senior wealth advisor for Northern Trust based in their Pasadena office and is an expert on this subject matter. I'm your host, Anna Solomon. I'm trust counsel for Fiduciary Trust International, and I'm on the executive committee of the Trust and Estate section of the California Lawyers Association, and this is Trust Me. Welcome to Trust Me, the official podcast of the Trust and Estate section of the California Lawyers Association. The Trust and Estate section seeks to further the knowledge of practitioners through updates and a wide range of educational opportunities. In addition, the section monitors and participates in the formation of laws and regulations that impact the trust and estates field and represents section members in the governance of the California Lawyers Association. And now, to your host of today's podcast. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Anna. Thanks for inviting me here today. So let's start with a basic question. How often do you discuss charitable giving with your clients? I feel fortunate that many of the clients I work with are incredibly charitably minded. They often have a history of charitable giving, and I get to talk with them about how to make their giving more intentional and potentially more tax efficient for them as well. I agree. It's a topic that I discuss with a lot of our clients as well. And because of those tax advantages that come with charitable giving, it's almost a disservice to not discuss with our clients, right? Definitely. So let's walk through the tax benefits that come with charitable giving in the estate planning world. So as a background, we have transfer taxes, the federal estate and gift tax, and that is a tax on the assets that you own at death, but it also takes into account what you gift during your lifetime. So you essentially pay a 40% tax on what you own over the exemption amount. And in 2024, that exemption amount is at its all-time high at 13.61 million dollars per person so for example let's say that you have a client and that client is worth about 20 million dollars when they die and then they have to pay taxes on their estate because it's over that 13.6 million dollar exemption amount so in that case amy can giving assets to charity help reduce this tax yes many clients like to include charitable gifts at death because they receive a dollar-for-dollar charitable deduction for any amount given to a qualified charity. In fact, if a donor with a taxable estate wanted to, they could completely eliminate the estate tax by donating enough to charity. So in the example you gave above, if that client gave $13.6 million to their heirs, the remaining $6.4 million of their $20 million estate could either be subject to a 40% tax, or they could donate it all to charity and essentially pay no estate tax. Yep. So if they do give some of those assets to charity, then they can eliminate their estate tax, right? Exactly. Well, let's talk about gift taxes. Does it work the same for gift taxes? As we know, gift taxes are very much tied to the estate tax. So generally what you gift during life gets counted towards your exemption amount, right? Right. Gifts made directly to charities are exempt from gift taxes. Now, it gets a little more complicated when a donor gifts only a partial interest or makes a gift to a split interest trust, but we'll discuss that a little bit later. 
yes, well, let's discuss and save the complicated split interest trust for later. But let's briefly talk about income taxes. Are the rules for charitable deductions for estate and gift different than in the income tax world? Yes. Like many other parts of the tax code, the rules for income tax charitable deductions are different than the estate and gift tax world. So charitable income tax deductions can vary based on the type of gift, the type of recipient, and the type of gift. Is it a direct gift to a charity or a charitable remainder trust or a charitable lead trust? It can get quite complicated. I'm sure, and I'm sure we can have our own podcast episode just on that topic, but maybe we'll sprinkle in some income tax issues as we go along the way. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay, so let's jump right in in terms of gifting strategies. So as you noted, there's many different ways to give assets to charities. You can either gift assets outright to a charity or maybe gift assets to a trust and that trust has a charitable beneficiary to it, right? Well, let's talk about the simplest one first. So gifting assets outright. What do I need to know about that? A direct gift is a gift of cash, securities, or tangible personal property like paintings or rare books made directly to a charity. And because this involves gifting directly to a charity, it's the most simple type of gift and one that is often used by many clients. Okay, so let's talk about gifting assets outright and capital gains. So again, in the income tax world. So let's say that I have an appreciated asset. Should I donate that asset directly to a charity or should I sell that asset and then donate the cash that I receive to a charity? Oftentimes, Anna, it makes more sense to do the former. By donating an appreciated asset, you know, that's one with long-term capital gain directly to charity, donors can avoid the capital gains tax they otherwise would incur if they sold the asset themselves and then donated the proceeds. The charity can sell the asset instead. And because they're a nonprofit, they can typically avoid the capital gains tax on sale. Okay. So I think that makes sense to me, which is gift the asset to the charity and then the charity can sell the asset, right? But practically speaking, though, I know some charities can get picky on what assets they receive and what they choose to take and then sell. How does that work? Oh, definitely. I'm actually currently working with an estate where the decedent has left a particular painting to an art museum. But, you know, the art museum has to decide whether or not this painting will fit in with their collection. Typically, museums have committees that review and accept gifts. Or even if the museum decides to accept the gift, they may never end up actually displaying it, which is probably not what the decedent would have wanted. So what are you doing in that situation? Thankfully, the attorney who drafted the estate plan included a clause that contemplated if the art museum did not accept the gift, the trustee can actually choose another museum that might, or ultimately the trustee can sell the artwork and then donate the proceeds from the sale to the museum. It's because of examples like this that we encourage donors and their counsel to work directly with the charity's plan giving or development office and make the gift a collaborative process. Oh, that's a great idea. Make sure that there's a communication there between the donor, the attorney, and also the charity, right? Right. And it's also a great drafting lesson. You know, it's good that the attorney included that clause. And also, if you're giving assets to a charity at death, So, for example, in your trust or your will, is capital gains much of an issue? 
Typically, no. So under current law, when you die, most of your assets get a step up in income tax basis to the fair market value as of your date of death. So that means that if anyone were to sell an asset in your estate for the fair market value as of your date of death, there probably wouldn't be much of a capital gains tax due because there wouldn't be much of a gain at that point. Okay. Because of the step up in basis and you want to sell the property soon after death so that there's probably not going to be any appreciation, right? Exactly. So let's talk about the mechanics of getting the deduction. I assume that you probably need an appraisal, right, to show fair market value for the IRS? We're talking about gifts worth more than $5,000, which is the case for most of our clients. The IRS requires a qualified appraisal be completed by a qualified appraiser for many of the charitable contributions. And you have to keep that qualified appraisal in your records. Moreover, if the gift is over $500,000, you have to attach a qualified appraisal to your return. And I know we were recently talking about a tax court case about the importance of getting a qualified appraisal. You know what case I'm talking about? Yes. You're talking about the Hohenscheid tax court case? Yes. Yes, I am. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? In that case, a donor gifted closely held stock in a business to a donor advised fund. The business was sold and the donor sought to avoid capital gain on the sale and obtain an income tax charitable deduction for the gift to the donor advised fund. In that case, the court ultimately denied the charitable deduction because the appraisal used by the donor was performed by the financial advisor who occasionally performed valuations, but he didn't hold himself out as an appraiser. He had no certificate from a professional appraisal organization. And moreover, the appraisal itself didn't actually meet the IRS requirements of a qualified appraisal. So as a result, the tax court denied the donor's charitable deduction. That's a pretty harsh result just because they did not follow the technicalities, right? Yeah, it is a pretty bad result for the taxpayer. (laughs) Yeah. So are there any other considerations to be aware of? Definitely. One of the most important considerations is timing particularly if you're donating an interest in a business prior to a sale. We want to avoid something called the anticipatory assignment of income doctrine, which was another key issue in that Hohenscheid case. You know, we could do a whole podcast on that case in and of itself, but let's just stick to the basics. And I'll say that if you are contemplating a large charitable gift, please work with your advisors well in advance to make sure all of the details and technicalities are figured out in order to make sure your gift is done in a way that's most tax efficient. So we've talked about a lot of the considerations and all of the things that we need to be anxious about, but let's talk about the benefits. Like what are the benefits of gifting outright? Direct gifts are great because they're simple. Typically there are a few administrative costs and oftentimes donors can gift anonymously, which is important to a lot of our clients. Because of the simplicity involved, direct gifts are a really common and easy way for clients to give to charity. So that's the simple way to gift. Now let's talk about other ways to gift to charities. And mainly, I want to focus on trust for charitable beneficiaries. And I'm talking about your CRUTs, your CRATs, your CLATs. I love my acronyms. So let's talk about all the great acronyms. Let's talk about the Charitable Remainder Trust first. Can you explain what this is? A Charitable Remainder Trust, or in acronym speak, a CRT, pays income to at least one living beneficiary for either that beneficiary's lifetime or a term of years, which cannot exceed 20 years, 
And then upon the end of the beneficiary's lifetime or the end of the trust term, whatever's left in that CRT goes directly to charity. Okay, so it's a trust where you pay an income to a non-charitable beneficiary throughout their lifetime or a term, and then everything else goes to charity. Is that right? Exactly. And are there any other specific rules that we need to keep in mind when you're setting up a charitable remainder trust? As always, there are lots of rules. So in addition to the duration that I just mentioned, CRT payments must be at least 5% but no more than 50% of the initial fair market value of the trust asset. Okay, so payments to the non-charitable beneficiary has to be between 5% to 50%. Is that right? Right. And any other limitations? Additionally, the chosen payout rate is further limited to a maximum rate that will result in the charity receiving on an actuarial basis at least 10% of the value of the assets initially transferred to the CRT. So overall, charity has to at least get 10%, right? Right. Okay. Anything else? The CRT remainder has to pass to either one or more charitable beneficiaries at the end of the term. Okay. Got it. Which makes sense because it's called a charitable remainder trust, right? (laughs) Right. Okay. So also when we talk about charitable remainder trusts, we hear about two different kinds, like the two most popular kinds. What are those two most popular types of CRTs? They are a CRAT and a CRUT. Okay. Okay. I like acronyms. Let's keep going with the acronyms. Let's start with the CRAT. What does the CRAT stand for and how does it work? A CRAT is a Charitable Remainder Annuity Trust. CRATs distribute a fixed annuity dollar amount to the lifetime beneficiary each year. Okay, and how about a CRUT? What's a CRUT? What does it stand for? How does it work? A CRUT, on the other hand, distributes a fixed percentage of the trust assets each year. So this requires that the trust assets have to be appraised annually in order to determine how much the beneficiary needs to receive each year. So the main difference is whether that non-charitable beneficiary is receiving either a fixed dollar amount or a percentage, right? Yes, yes. There are a couple other differences, like a donor can contribute additional assets to a CRUT after its formation, but not a CRAT. And generally, CRUTs offer more planning flexibility because of the potential for those additional contributions, and they can be drafted in such a way to delay the payments to current beneficiaries. The delaying of payments. Are you talking about a flip crut? Yes, that is one of the many variations. And a flip crut is a pretty common one. Okay, let's talk about that because the term flip crut to me sounds like a bar game, like flip cup, you know? (laughs) Unfortunately, Anna, it's not as exciting as a bar game, but flip cruts are a really common way to maximize a charitable gift for both the charity and the donor. It's a widely used strategy for illiquid assets like real estate or business interests because essentially a flip credit will pay the non-charitable beneficiary the net income from the trust until the quote-unquote flip event, which is commonly the sale of the real estate or the business. And at that point, the flip credit pays the beneficiary a unitrust percentage of the assets, which is easier to do now that the trust has the liquidity from the sale to distribute to the beneficiary. 
So it's essentially a trust that starts out by distributing net income to a non-charitable beneficiary, right? Yes. And then after what we call the flip event, like a sale or something, it turns into a CRUT, right? Exactly. Anna, you just won the flip CRUT bargain. <laughs> that's, that's great. So let's talk about why somebody would want to set up a CRT in general versus giving assets outright. When do clients set up structures like a CRT? We typically recommend that CRT should be considered when a donor has a significant asset they want to donate to charity, they want to receive an income tax deduction, and they want to retain some income flow from the asset. And CRTs are especially powerful when funded with high value, low basis assets. So high value, low basis assets, why is that important or why is that powerful? Donors can get an immediate income tax deduction for the portion of the trust that is calculated to go to charity. And furthermore, CRTs are considered tax-exempt entities. So when the CRT sells that highly appreciated asset, the CRT does not have to pay capital gain tax immediately. So when you say tax-exempt entity, what I think of is maybe I can escape capital gain tax by setting up a CRT? Not quite. <laughs> the capital gain is still incurred, but it's actually spread out over a number of years. So as distributions are made to the beneficiary, a portion of those distributions are taxable as that capital gain. So we as advisors need to be mindful to remind clients that CRTs are tax deferral vehicles. Deferral is the key word, right? Yes. Well, let's talk about things to be careful of and mindful of when creating CRTs. Now, what do you usually warn your clients about? CRTs are irrevocable trusts. Once you put the assets into a CRT, you can't just take them back whenever you want. Well, can I change the charitable remainder beneficiary? For example, if I set up this crut crat now, right, and 10 years from now, maybe I change my mind about what charity I want to support, am I allowed to change that? Yes. Typically, the donor can reserve the right to change the charitable beneficiary, or the donor could also name a donor advice fund as the remainder beneficiary. I know the donor advice fund we offer at Northern allows you to name successor advisors who can make grants to charity even after the initial donor has passed away. Great. So we've covered charitable remainder trusts and some of its different variations. Let's shift gears and talk about charitable lead trusts, CLTs, right? So can you explain what a charitable lead trust is? A charitable lead trust is an irrevocable trust designed to provide annual payments to one or more charities for a period of time, you know, for a term of years typically, while the remaining assets eventually are transferred back to the grantor, maybe to their family members or other beneficiaries without paying a state or gift tax. So it's kind of like a CRT, but reversed. The charity gets the annual payments for a period of years, and then it goes to the non-charitable beneficiary. Am I thinking about that right? Yes, exactly. And what's interesting is that while I talk to clients all the time about CLTs, there are so few CLTs actually created. The IRS used to post statistics about charitable trusts. In 2012, which is the last year statistics were published, there were over 100,000 reporting CRTs, but only about 6,000 CLTs. 
wow, that's a big discrepancy. And I was just talking to one of our former colleagues about this topic, Amy, and she's been practicing for, I think, what, 20 years and has only ever drafted one CLT. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, definitely. But, you know, I I still think CLTs have their place in our charitable conversations. Okay, so let's get into that. So walk me through when clients might want to set up a CLT. A typical use for a CLT is to transfer assets to a donor's heirs during the donor's lifetime with reduced transfer taxes. Well, so how does that work? Well, like a GRAT, a CLAT can be zeroed out for estate and gift tax purposes. So a GRAT, similar to a CLAT, which makes sense because it rhymes, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, Anna. (laughs) A donor can put an interest like a family business into a CLAT for a term of years. And the CLAT will make payments to the charitable lead interest for that set amount of years. And then whatever remains in the trust, which is hopefully, you know, like the family business interest, can pass to the beneficiaries free from estate and gift tax if the CLAT is properly structured. That does sound like a a pretty good benefit. But what if a donor wants to create a CLT at death? That's another very common use for the CLT, a testamentary CLAT which is a CLAT set up on the death of the grantor. So someone who has a taxable estate but is adamant about not paying estate tax could even direct all of their assets to a testamentary CLAT at their death. But just to make sure I understand this right, doesn't that mean that the beneficiaries only get their assets after a certain number of years, like after the CLAT terminates? Yes, that's exactly what it means, which is probably why it's not done more often. But If you use it in conjunction with its rhyming cousin, the grad, (laughs) or other irrevocable trusts, maybe the donor has already set aside a source of funds for the beneficiaries, then they can afford to wait for the CLAT to terminate and receive their assets in a few years. Oh, that's a clever idea, Amy. But let's talk about the income tax perspective when it comes to CLTs. So my understanding is that CLTs can be set up as grantor trust versus non-grantor trust, right? Exactly. And how does that make a difference from a tax perspective? That's a great question, Anna. The CLT benefits I've been describing are for non-grantor CLTs. Grantor CLTs are set up during a donor's life and are especially beneficial for donors who have a significant income event. How so? A donor is treated as the grantor of grantor CLTs for income tax purposes Mm -hmm. and can receive an immediate income tax deduction for the actuarial value of the charitable interests as of the date of transfer. Here's where it's really impactful. Anna, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a client come to you after the sale of their business and say, hey, I just sold my business. How can I reduce my income tax liability for this year? It seems like that happens all the time. Clients come to us after they sold their business, right? Exactly. So situations like that are when grantor CLTs can be helpful. The donor can put some of the proceeds from the sale into the CLT and then receive an immediate income tax deduction to help offset the income from the sale for that year. And then eventually, hopefully, the CLT thrives, survives, and they get a portion of those assets back at the end of the term. Wow. So that's a pretty good benefit from a tax perspective. But let's just briefly talk about from a non-tax perspective. What do you tell clients about other benefits of a CLT? CLTs are great because it allows a donor to support their charitable endeavors during their lifetime, 
and it also provides a potential source of benefit for their heirs in the future. Well, how about things to be mindful of when we create CLTs? What do I need to think about? And just like the CRT, am I allowed to change the charitable beneficiary? Under very limited circumstances, you may be able to, depending on the type of CLT, but typically, no. So a better idea would be to name a donor advised fund as the beneficiary of the CLT. And then that way, the donor can have more flexibility to name grantees in the future from the donor advised fund. That's another great idea, Amy. So we've talked about gifting outright. We've talked about gifting into CRTs. We've talked about gifting to CLTs. And really, that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for joining us and discussing Charitable Planning 101. If you'd like additional information on this topic, please email Amy. I've included her contact information in the show notes. And thank you so much for tuning in to Trust Me. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections, Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the Trusts and Estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.